Digital Gonzo episode 107, dated Wednesday the 31st of October 2012, Monster House. Nobody will sit next to us at lunch. You'll see. No ghosts. Jared, come back, please. Jared, I'm serious. <laughs> to celebrate Halloween this year, I'm taking a look at a relatively unseen, relatively uncelebrated animated film. Loading up their super soakers and journeying into this most monstrous of houses, newly minted dungeon master Neil Taylor of Gameburst and KDS 2.0 returns to Digital Gonzo after way too long. Thank you for having me back. And last seen lurking in the shadows of the Mark of the Ninja podcast from the Gonzo Planet community, Mr. Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. We're going to be talking about this movie in depth. Feel free to listen in for the first half hour or so, and we will let you know when we're going to start spoiling things from later in the movie that you would really be better off discovering for yourself. At that point, switch off the podcast and go see the movie, then come back for the end. Monster House was the second of five performance capture films made over a seven-year period by the now-defunct studio Image Movers. The first was The Polar Express in 2004, the third was Beowulf in 2007, the fourth was A Christmas Carol in 2009, and the fifth and final was Mars Needs Moms in 2011. This one being an absolutely ideal example of that rarest of beasts, a Halloween family film, was cannily released in June 2006, so as not to compete with The Grudge 2, Saw 2, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, that is, the prequel to the 2003 remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was, of course, the second remake, and not to be confused with 1994's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, or Texas Chainsaw 3D, the sequel to the 1974 original, coming out in 2013, which in turn is not to be confused with the original sequel to the original, 1986's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, or that sequel, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface. <laughs> yeah, try being a fan of that series like me. It's hard to follow. It sometimes. sounds confusing. They didn't want to put out Monster House at Halloween so that it would have to compete with those other really grown up films that we adults like to watch. Well, to be fair, that was when Saw was turning into the juggernaut that it became. But at the same time, it's, it's a starved market for kids at Halloween. It's so, so, so rare to find kids sort of horror films yeah they normally relegate it to tv movies yeah or straight to dvd adaptations of say shrek or uh other yeah, yeah. uh the kids stuff like this tends to be like the the um oh what was the series called i think it was on bbc or itv was it are you are you afraid of the dark something like that yeah like that. that's the stuff that they tend to do which afraid? is a shame or eerie indiana <laughs> which which i loved as a kid but i've been recently told that it might not hold up as well which is sad. It's it's still good. It's just it's um it's kind of like the the Kiddie X Files. Have you seen the hole in three D? No, that's the that's um by the guy that did Gremlins, isn't it? Yeah, uh, um, Joe Dante. Joe Dante, and I hear good things about that. Yeah, and it is good. It actually is not dissimilar in tone to this. Proper jump scares in that as well. Uh, you know, there's the only other two that are springing to mind are one of these. I'm going to get the piss taken out with me for, but the first one I think of is Monster Squad. 
Yeah. Which is, you probably want older kids for that. You want early teenagers for that one. Yeah. Well. Like, yeah. But that is a monster mash movie, which is awesome in its own right, because that's Universal Monsters. I think I saw that when I was about nine. I thought it was great. I've seen yes. it again recently. It's not too bad. It's sort it's, of it's still it's good. Kind and of imagine a really sort of low budget Goonies. Uh, it's produced by Rob Cohen, and he wants to do a sequel. Oh, they're, they're up against the Universal monsters, so like Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster, who only at one only at one point gets referred to as a Frankenstein. Um, Gilman from the Black Lagoon, yeah, and the Mummy. And, and it's got the awesome line. Don't forget the awesome line. Wolfman's got knots. And the one that you're going to take the mickey out of me for is the only other one I could think of. I'm so sorry. Earnest, scared, stupid. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. It's, I remember it not being bad, but memories are <laughs> a funny thing. Uh, Monster House was overseen by the great Robert Zemeckis. He of Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Robert Zemeckis' company was Image Movers Digital. This was his baby. Uh, also co-produced by Steven Spielberg, who clearly loves performance capture, as he was the producer and director of the Tintin movie, Secret of the Unicorn, which I recommend to everyone because it actually feels like Uncharted. Significantly, Spielberg oversaw a period of family sci-fi adventure entertainment throughout the 80s, including but not limited to Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T., Gremlins, Poltergeist, Batteries Not Included, Inner Space, The Goonies, Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Jurassic Park. Which are all freaking awesome. And thank yeah. you for reminding me of Batteries Not Included. I loved that as a kid. Yeah. Was that Jessica Tandy in that one? Or Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all of those that I mentioned are good. Some not-so-fantastic sequels, Poltergeist, uh, Jurassic <laughs> Park, Park, Star Wars, <laughs> Indiana <laughs> Jones. <laughs> we pretty much we buried Star Wars long ago. Yeah. Um, these were the ingredients in the crucible of my adoration of movies and adventure. And Monster House brings with it the feel of a lot of those, that sense of kids being portrayed in a realistic, non-patronizing manner, being slowly pulled into an exciting, dangerous, and undeniably scary world. I have a list here of other films this one reminded me of a little, and I'm wondering how many you guys can name. Or remember. Or remember. (laughs) Folks, just so you understand, uh, we recorded 23 minutes before we realized that this thing wasn't recording properly. So well, we've already done this, and uh, but it's still still recording right now. It would appear. Okay, so uh, anyone off the top of your head? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to this list by the way, Super Eight, which uh, uh, more recently uh, a film actually uh, definitely. kind of feels like this, which I still need to see. Damn it, that list is growing. Yeah, Super Eight's great. Um, okay, so we've already said the Monster Squad, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, Poltergeist. We've already said Poltergeist, yeah. Harry Potter. Harry Potter, yep. Stand by Me, it very much like it, yep. Uh, Lady in White, Goonies, Goonies, absolutely. This, this probably Goonies is the one that feels the most like. In fact, frankly, um, DJ and uh, Chowder could have been Mikey and Chunk. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is a little bit of a sort of an out there one, uh, but in terms of possessed house. Amityville Horror, Evil Dead. I, I, I suggested perhaps a little bit of the Burbs. Yeah, yeah, you did say that. Joe Dante again. Uh, also, if uh, for a fan of literature, To Kill a Mockingbird. We've talked about this. You cannot stay up in your room all day staring at an old man through a telescope. But, Mom, there's something wrong with that house. <laughs> I'm serious. What was that? <clears throat> I'm serious. His voice sounds funny. 
Someone is hitting puberty. What's happening to my body? <laughs> right, buddy? Maybe you should come with us. Oh, the boy's too busy. He's got his spying to do. I'm not spying. Oh. Um, well... Well, uh... <laughs> That's okay, buddy. When I was your age, I did exactly the same thing. Of course, it was with binoculars and involved the lovely Jensen twins, neither of which was as lovely as your beautiful mother. Oh. Will you be an angel and help me bring out the incisor? Oh, Hold on to this, buddy. Yeah, I don't want to forget that. Before I continue, I just want to correct a mistake I made during the first episode of The Sound of Gonzo. It was when I was describing Coraline as being a CG film made to look like claymation. In fact, it was wholly claymation, augmented by occasional CG flourishes. I've received several messages about that, and I figured I'd clear that one up on this show and ensure I reach the ears of all the animation fans out there with this apology for my dunderheadedness. I should have done my research. I always do, but in that one case, I let that one slip. Bad Alex, no biscuit. (laughs) (laughs) The animation in Monster House is CG, superimposed over the frames of the original actors who play their roles physically in a studio rather than just giving voiceover. Effectively, it's the modern-day equivalent of rotoscoping, which we'll talk about on the first Lord of the Rings show when mentioning the Ralph Bakshi animated film. This (laughs) This is not to be confused with motion capture, which is a simplified version. Performance capture allows the actors to transpose every nuanced movement through the animators and into the characters. All of Image Movers films utilize this practice, and now that they're gone, not many others are exploring it. Only Weta Workshop at the team. The initial evolution of the technique was started in the creation of Gollum in the Two Towers by Weta Workshop. Andy Serkis would perform each scene with Elijah Wood and Sean Astin, and those takes were taken as performance references by the animators. Then his face would be mapped with tiny marker dots and shot in a studio to get the expressions which would then translate into the movements of the CG Gollum's visage. This was repeated in King Kong, and more recently, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Tintin. It has always sat slightly uncomfortably with audiences who, especially with Beowulf and A Christmas Carol, don't see why they're not watching a live-action film. It often plummets into the uncanny valley, which is where your brain tells you that this is real, but that there's something a little bit wrong. A degree of stylization is always far easier for us to accept, hence the popularity of Pixar, who take this level of detail and transpose it to cartoonish characters. In video games, the technique has fared a little better, since game enthusiasts are used to realistic character models with poor acting, a la Resident Evil. So, more realism and detail with better acting seems like progress, with Ninja Theory and Naughty Dog being the main two studios to utilise it. Heavenly Sword Enslaved and the four Uncharted games have done this, with the latter there being massively popular. So what we're going to do is, if we go through the film, what I'm going to do, if we focus on characters, and we can talk about what's happening to the characters, and take it through roughly chronologically. Uh, so the first main character you properly get to meet is DJ. I mean, you get you get to meet the little girl on the tricycle and Nebercracker to start with, but um, it becomes a film about DJ very, very quickly. And he's a lad who is on the very cusp of reaching adolescence. He's, what, 12? Like, yeah. about yeah. to turn 13. It seems like he's got a birthday approaching or something. So he... he because it's it's the day before Halloween, his friend wants them to go trick-or-treating, and he, he just feels like he's getting a bit too old for it. And he's starting to notice girls, his voice is starting to break, he wants to be treated more like a man, and he's at that stage where you put aside childish things. But some of the childish things are still knocking around in his room. He's got his little rabbit, he's got his super soakers and stuff like that. I'm going to go upstairs and hide my super soakers. 
<laughs> you know, sometimes when you watch sort of kids' films and the kids don't feel like kids, as you, you often see, like, he really, he feels like a kid of that age. Yeah. Like you say, he's got the, the sort of the, the kid-style posters on the wall. He's still got his his cuddly rabbit. Oh, uh, dumb. i got to get rid of them. Maybe <laughs> art. You know what's really dumb is, I remember saying similar stuff when I was sort of that age. Yeah. We've all been there. <laughs> Moving my cuddly Simba out of the way. He's a very relatable character. Yeah. He is. He is very relatable. And he's got the overprotective parents. He's curious. There's, there's very little to dislike about DJ. Yeah. Uh, he's, and he's somewhat of a nerd as well. Yeah. A little bit of a nerd. That always helps. And uh, a little bit uh, awkward about... Well, kind of very awkward around women, actually. Yeah. Uh, he's played by Mitchell Musso. And uh, his parents, very briefly in the film, played by Catherine O'Hara, who was the mother figure in Beetlejuice, which is another film this feels a bit like. And uh, Fred Willard, um, who's actually played her on-screen husband a couple of times before in um, Waiting for Guffman. They were a husband and wife. Haven't seen so. <laughs> oh, you've not seen... Have you, have you seen um, Best in Show? Nope. Oh, my God. A Mighty Wind? No. Why, all three of them... Um, feature Fred Willard and uh, I think Catherine O'Hara is in all of them. They're Christopher Guest comedies, and they're they're done in that slightly office style. So it's it's sort of cinema veritas, really on, funny you, films. This is me you're talking to. There's only one Christopher Guest film for me. Uh, Spinal Tap, of course. If you like Spinal Tap, these will actually feel kind of. I know. Like, I've actually, seen bits of them, but I've never sat and watched the whole of them. You'll I remember Fred Willard actually from Spinal Tap. He was the guy on the military base saying, I shouldn't walk close to the band. They'll think I'm part of the group. I am, of course, kidding. In Best in Show, he plays this overly boisterous, somewhat harebrained announcer who I think has probably been drafted to this extremely high-class dog show from a football or something like that. He's, he's, he's just sort of he's saying everything that pops into his head. And he's been paired up with very, very posh British Jim Pittock, and it's a great sort of combination of... You know, yeah. him, to think that... Oh, have you seen it, Jerome? Yeah, I've seen Best in Show. To think that in some countries <laughs> these dogs are eaten. <laughs> As you know, back in 1970, I started on a series called What Happened? And every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, Hey, what happened? <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. I got a real red wagon. And... uh I can't do my work. And I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. But it only lasted a year, and that's good because that's how you establish a cult. Either way, he's a massively, massively funny guy, and it's it's great to see him here, even if just for a little bit. And Catherine O'Hara is fantastic as well. She was, I th- yeah, she was Sally in Nightmare Before Christmas, which this also feels a little bit like. They're only really there to show that DJ has got slight, a slightly overbearing mother... And a father who, he doesn't ignore, ignore him in any way, but he doesn't seem to really understand him either. Yeah, he's, he's talking, oh, he's, he's, it's the hormones, it's okay. Yeah, and they're just going away for the weekend, and, and they sound like they fight quite a lot. But not in a, in a, like a, a bitter way, but just in a kind of, a, like, they're constantly trying to assure each other that they know more about the relationship, and indeed DJ, than the other. Um, and then we're introduced to Chowder, played by Sam Lerner, who is the tubby friend of DJ. And again, if you've seen The Goonies, he's pretty much Chunk. Chunk was extremely um, immature 
in comparison to the other he, guys. He, he comes across <laughs> as like he's like the younger one mentally. He he, he doesn't want to grow up. He he is just about playing the video games, eating the candy, having fun. Yeah, and he's also a scaredy cat like Junk. And um, he seems to have had a bit more of a sheltered existence. Like maybe his mom doesn't like him doing dangerous things. Uh, there's one point where he gets a, an angry phone call from his dad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's a, there's a, a little note that he says, says something along the lines of it. His dad's working late at the pharmacy, and his mom's gone to the movies with her personal, with her personal trainer. trainer. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. You know, both these kids are absolutely clueless to the comings and goings of their parents and what that could actually imply. I but, I, I just feel sorry for him because they called him Chowder. Um, it's not called Chowder, that's a nickname. They're in, okay. in the original version of the film, which was nearly two hours long, um, it was scripted that you'd find out his name, but Chowder, for the, those unacquainted with it, is a sort of a clam soup. Yeah. Stew. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to know how he got that name. Sounds horrible. But he's got a little cape on, and he wears it for the entire movie, and I just thought that's, it's a lovely little way of showing that he's, is a child, but also, by the end of the film, he acts in heroic ways. And you realise that the cape is actually warranted. Yeah. 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 But all Chowder wants to do is do just do trick-or-treating one more time. He wants the candy, he wants a quiet life, and he wants DJ to stop trying to act like a grown-up all the time and just be fun a bit more. Because there's a little bit of a rift growing between them. There's a really great framed shot at one point where the house is looking at them and you're you're getting the house's eye view and the window starts to crack and it actually puts the crack in between the two of them. Uh, That's about yeah. the time when they're starting to argue over Jenny later on. So DJ's parents go away for the weekend to some sort of dentist convention and he's left in the care, I use that in very honest, <laughs> of Z, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I would say the worst babysitter in the world, but uh, Louise Woodward, maybe not the worst babysitter in the world, but certainly a lazy one. But she is a can't-be-asked type of babysitter. I don't want to be your friend. I have control of the stereo and the TV. We're not watching movies. I'm not playing board games. We're not doing shrinky-dinks. <laughs> and, you know, just stare out of my face is, is her remit. She is just there to make sure the house doesn't burn down. And to be a stereotype that all rockers are unpleasant people. I, it, yeah, heavy metal doesn't come off well in this film, does it? <laughs> no, it yeah. doesn't. She uh, invites her somewhat drunken, slightly already washed up, even though he's actually quite young, rocker boyfriend, Bones Around, played by Jason Lee. And uh, there's actually a subtext of that Skull and Bones, the band that she listens to, there's going to be more about that, but they were... Um, him and uh, Skull, who oh. you meet later on, uh, were sort of a, uh, a heavy metal duet, and then there was something of a Spinal Tap style falling out. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think, as Gil Keenan, the director, said that they live in the kind of town where you could probably keep a fairly rubbishy heavy metal band going for quite a long time before you realise that it's not working, and uh, and that appears to have happened for them. So yeah, Jason Lee is a mean bugger in this. Bones. But Jason Lee is always awesome, because yeah. I love Jason Lee. His face is one of the first ones yeah. that really strikes you as, wow, that actually kind of looks like him, and his, his little nuances and movements. But very significantly, he te- starts to tear apart uh, DJ's rabbit, which never gets a name, which is like a violation of the last vestige of his childhood, uh, which, you know, really upsets DJ. And then he gives it back to him and says, sorry, kid, can't play no more. He's referring to the fact that he's being summoned back downstairs by Z, but it's very symbolic when he gives the ruined toy back to DJ. In short, he's an arse. Yeah. 
Absolutely. But he's the first victim in a horror movie, and that first victim always has to be, uh, this is from the commentary, someone unpleasant that we want to actually fall victim and also, it, it sort of plays in with the whole moralising that, uh, that that all good horror movies actually are at the core. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're a drunkard and you're mean to kids, then bad things will happen to you. As I once said on a very old KDS, we had the you will die list from a horror film. And one of them was, if you are drunk, you will die. Yeah. And unfortunately, he is, he is quite drunk and uh, gets eaten. I do also really like the way that uh, Hal plays Z in terms of the fact that she's... I don't know, she, she seems like she might have actually been relatively pleasant just a few years ago, but she's going through a period right now where she's just kind of screw you to the entire world. Uh, yeah. You get sort of a glimpse of it when she first drives up and she's being... She's portraying herself yeah. as a very nice girl. It's just an act. Yeah. Yeah, very shortly afterwards, Jenny, played by Spencer Locke, comes by. She ended up playing, I believe her name is Kmart, in the later Resident Evil movies. Really? I kid you not. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah. Poor her. Yeah. That is not a step up from this. Jenny's actually, what, 11? She's actually even younger than these guys, but she acts really? far, far older. Yeah, if you, if you check the, uh, the oh, information yeah. on this one. She acts far older, and um, she's got this kind of 80s power businesswoman thing going on uh, for her. And actually tries to... Well, she's, she's using her cookie and candy business as a way to... She's doing the hard sell on all of this Halloween junk to, to get people to effectively buy house insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you sort of get the feeling that her mum's like that as well. Yeah. You get the feeling that her mum's like a no-nonsense, tough businesswoman that she's rubbed off on her because the scene between her and Z is awesome. I love that when love they that start, one. when they just drop the axe. Mm. And they the just... crap, kid, yeah. I yeah, mean, the fact that it's like, say, how many, how much money they've given something like 40 bucks? Um, If you buy $10, I'll give you a receipt for 30. You get to park it. Okay, I've probably messed that up, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds really kind of skullduggerous what she does. It's um, fudging the numbers. and uh, But yeah, it, 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 it gives Z a newfound respect for her. Her eyes narrow and sort of, ah, kid, you are pure evil. Uh, but at the same, Z also mentions that she got kicked out of Jenny's school, which is a really yeah. quite preppy place with its own uniform, which is big in America. And, um, as in, like, they don't, you know, if you're wearing a uniform to school, it's a posh school. Which implies that Z was not only uh, a much more, you know, well-behaved girl a few years ago before she started rebelling, but was actually from slightly more well-to-do parents. Which tells you a bit more about her. Just trying to get a head start on life and secure a successful future. You want a successful future? When a guy with tattoos comes up to the drive-thru, give him his burger. Not your phone number. Thank you for the advice. I'll be sure to make a note of it. But back to business. Eggs. Shaving cream. Toilet paper. Without candy, I'm afraid your house is a bullseye with shingles. Nice try. It's not my house. Babysitter? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, let's cut the crap. Maybe the parents you work for left you $40 in emergency money. Maybe they left me 30 Maybe you give me 20, I write a receipt for 30, and you pocket 10. Maybe. And I want two extra bags of peanut clusters. One bag, and I'll toss in a licorice whip. You're good. 
I think we can probably see where she started acting out, though, if her parents got her going to that school. And, yeah, so then we get Jenny uh, encountering the house. The house across the street from DJ has been acting very strangely recently. Everyone knows that for a long, long time, every time kids go play on the lawn or kick a ball into the yard or throw a frisbee in there, it gets confiscated by the uh, occupant of the house, Mr. Nebercracker, a crazy, aggressive, angry old man who looks like Gollum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. does a bit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, DJ's certain something's going on in the house, but eventually starts to, to wonder if it's actually something even more insidious than just a crazy old man. And it becomes more and more apparent as you're, as you're watching little uh, clues until it eventually becomes full-blown that this house is swallowing people. It starts with bones. It doesn't immediately... It didn't immediately strike me the first time I watched it, but the house starts to really become self-aware and starts to really act out and become a monster uh, when Nebercracker apparently dies. It's when... Yeah. Um, He's being wheeled away. Uh, yeah, when he's being wheeled away, it's as though he was him being in there kept the house on its best behaviour, and he was effectively its its watcher, its guardian. And then the house starts to act up and become and just start misbehaving, it becomes extremely aggressive, but also very crafty. Yeah. And it knows DJ's watching it, and it started to uh, to pay attention to the house across the street. There's a real sort of sense of, of menace coming from this thing. There's some, well, there's there's two major things that uh, they they do to sort of really get, get you the sense of, of something going on in the house itself. Uh, one is texture, and that's that they go really low, really close to the wood on the porch and the sort of the the, the surrounding at uh, the outside of the house, and it's like a very young child's eye view of it. Sort of when you were very, very young and were groveling on the floor all the time and crawling around looking at ants and, you know, touching everything and every uh, every uh, surface just to really get the feel for it. It's that sense of um, the world being absolutely enormous. And because it's um, done in this sort of animated way, they're able to really get in close and get very, very sharp imagery. It's, it's, it's a film made for HD so that you can really see the grain. Uh, something that really stri- strikes me about this is the fact that normally with a haunted house, the mm. scary thing is there's a spirit inside the house. Yeah. But for this, it's the actual house that's watching you. So, yeah. And it, it's not just the house it can control, it's the grass, it's the trees, and the fact that it has that sort of range and it lures people in. Mm. Well, yeah, it does that with Jenny, doesn't it? It yeah. sucks the warning signs into exactly. the grass. <laughs> yeah. And then uses the, pa- the paved stones mm. to try and lead her in there, and it wasn't for DJ and Chowder grabbing her, she would have been eaten. It's more like a Venus flytrap or some yeah. sort of carnivorous plant or a sarlacc. Yeah, so, but yeah, once, um, going back to the, uh, the texture thing, the house moves all the time. There's very much of a sort of sense of, like, you know, there's splinters sort of moving around and it seems like it's got sharp pointy edges that are undulating and that are bristles on it. Um, and of course that leads into the sound effects and they've filled it with sort of creaking kind of wood, the sense of it being this immense creature that's just shifting ever so slightly and it's, 
but they're all done in a very naturalistic way. So that if someone's walking past, they go, that house is creepy. Not that house is alive. That house it's is creepy. creepy. Yeah. And yeah, so we get the, the, the double whammy of extreme close-ups and sort of creeping, crawling camera angles on it. And this sort of really kind of uh, foreboding... Uh, abundance of, of very uh, striking sound effects. I actually reminded me of another film. Uh, there's scenes later on where the the porch, like um, it's got it's got, I don't know what you describe it as. It, it has things that come down that look like teeth, and then you see it later on going back to normal. Oh yeah, the um... Christine. That so reminds me of Christine. Really, does the car become like? No, but the fact that the car repairs itself to go back to normal to look like nothing's wrong. Oh, right. That's what the house does. There is a Stephen Kingy sense to this one, actually. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, the the boys try to tell Jenny what's going on, and she can she can she can't. They don't have to go through the you know we've got to get you to believe this thing because the house obligingly almost <laughs> eats her. So they cut through all of that, having to try and convince her because they've already tried doing that with Z and it didn't, didn't work at all. She just assumed that they were. Um, uh, what did she say? Uh, I don't know what disease you guys have, but I'm sure there's letters and that you could take pills for it. <laughs> <laughs> then you get to see that the their growing insanity as they're they're staring at it, and they've been um, drinking Mountain Dew all night. I'd, I don't know if you guys noticed as well, but DJ's room before they start, no Mountain Dew bottles. Uh, the morning is like seven Mountain Dew bottles. Yeah, where did all that Mountain Dew bottles come from? And unfortunately, those bottles ain't empty, and it ain't. Man- Tindu. No, a couple of them are <laughs> refilled, as it were. <laughs> um, but I mean, that means that there were like seven bottles in their fridge. <laughs> That's insane. What kind of dentist parent does that? I don't know, but it sounds like they had a warp to Midgemeister's fridge. Yeah. Either way, they, they consume a lot of that, which allows them to stay up all night. And that actually might... Because they don't sleep at all for the for the first night um, up to it that might you know help them the two boys be a lot more flustered for the uh, the next day because you know I, i've stayed up all night repeatedly and especially in my teenage years and by the next evening you start hallucinating even in a perfectly normal world and you become totally impossible to deal with so i do anyway and then the cops turn up <laughs> It's a very, very sleepy sort of one-horse town. So it's just them, uh, officers Landers and Lester, and um, <laughs> and and their backup, uh, which is just a woman at a desk. And they don't believe the kids, and they're amusing. And that uh, specifically Landers uh, has been doing it for a long, long time. Um, is a little bit corrupt, as it turns out later on. He he takes. Um, if, if there's some cough medicine around, he'll drink a little bit of it. Okay. It's not the first horror film to have comic relief coppers, unfortunately. That yeah. almost seems to be a, some of it. Not in a bad way. This 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 film really does have the horror movie tropes, but not in the bad way. But in the it hits the beats, and it works. For it does work for this film, and they are kind of funny, especially as the rookie. Because what does he call him? He's more excitable than a puppy or something. Yeah, yeah. He, he is. Uh, very entertaining this this guy he's, uh, he overreacts to everything and he's ready for action when it's the kind of like it's he's the the young stallion and then there's the old horse telling him look slow down and i was actually quite surprised when the house actually decided to get rid of them yeah because for at the time you're thinking it's just gonna let it go he's got no quarrels but the fact <laughs> they end up being the victims is actually quite surprising. 
I was just going to say an officer landers is Kevin James. Yeah, yeah. who's uh, had mixed films in Hollywood. Apparently, he's I, I quite liked him in Hitch, but so many of his other films are awful. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Yeah, stop working with what's his Adam place? Sandler. Yes. Yeah. Then the uh, the boys and Jenny go to see their equivalent of Gandalf in, in their <laughs> one horse town. Is uh, this is? I mean, this is kind of a, a sad thing because when you're a kid and no adult will listen to you, and your teachers are only going to teach you the required stuff. If you want to learn something unusual and off the map and off the books. You're going to have to go and see an older kid. And unfortunately, they seem to be not exa- somewhat starved for choice on who they can talk to because this guy, uh, <laughs> Reginald Skolinski, who they venerate as some sort of arcade god, is... It's very much that kid thing of this guy has completed this video game so, so cool. many times, so he's the coolest person we know. He's a chud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the perfect word. I mean, he's a caricature of, like, sort of living in his grandma's basement, working at a pizza place just so he can play Thou Art Dead, which was created entirely for this uh, film. It's kind of like Ghouls and Ghosts yeah, uh, with a little bit of magic sword in there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, to these kids, he, he is a, a wise man, a sage. And as it happens... He does tell them the little bit of information they need yep. to know about, which uh, they were originally in the original script going to be getting that out of a book, but it made more sense for it to be from someone where the source is somewhat spurious and where it's actually a comedic scene and, and also where it shows you how hard it is to be a kid because that's your Dumbledore. <laughs> that's your Morpheus. What? I'm busy playing a game without even looking at the screen. <laughs> Played by John Heder, who played Napoleon Dynamite and then did nothing. <laughs> he was in Blades of Glory, and I think he was in My Super Ex Girlfriend, and then nothing. Then I don't get a, it. Then he got a cartoon series oh, of yeah? Napoleon Dynamite. Oh right, really? Yeah, five Which, years after the fact, Napoleon Dynamite wasn't popular anymore. Oh right, okay. Lasted six episodes and then they cancelled it. Kind of like the Clerks one. When I first saw it, I really didn't like Napoleon Dynamite. Since then, I've seen it again, and I actually I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, it's it's good fun to see John Heater here playing, uh, not dissimilar to Napoleon, actually. You can always recognize his voice. You're looking at the three-time Tri-State Over-14 Thou Art Dead champion. His name is Reginald Skolinski, but they call him Skull. Who's they? Me and DJ. Yeah. He's the smartest guy on earth. So let's go talk to him. Hey, Jenny, 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 Jenny. hold on. Whoa. Hold up. Skull is in the game zone right now. And you don't want to mess with him when he's in the game zone. Fine, so how long is he going to be playing? <sighs> Who knows? He once played for four days straight on one quarter, a gallon of chocolate milk, and an adult diaper. The man's a legend. Mm-hmm. Well, if he's not coming out of the game zone, then we are going in. What? Uh, what? Jenny? Jenny? Um, in my travels to the video store and comic book conventions, I've seen many strange and wondrous things. And I've heard tell of man-made structures becoming possessed by a human soul so that the spirit becomes merged with wood and brick. Creating a rare form of monster known as Domus Mectipolis. 
And the whole thing about you know, he played through the entirety of Thou Art Dead over two days <laughs> with nothing but a, a gallon of chocolate milk, one quarter, and an adult diaper. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah, but Al, when we were growing he up, that, himself. Al, when we were growing up. When we were growing up, someone completing an arcade game on, what, 50p would have been cool for totally. us? I completely concur, and that's, that's tragic. I've got, where do you get adult diapers at that age? Uh, do you, do you just inquire? I From think Chowder's dad's pharmacy? Yeah, you go into the pharmacy and you go, yo, you got some for, for really old people who can't hold it anymore? <sighs> Let's face it. When it's it comes from my to grandma. Game, <laughs> when it comes to long periods of gaming, that's not the worst thing we've ever heard of. No, there is there is the practice of poop sucking. <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, before we go on to the rest of it, I've got a couple of other questions uh, pertaining to the actual film. Um, any that we haven't already mentioned, how does this film differ from the average CG family adventure? It's not fluff. You know, sometimes, like, you get Ice Age 2, 3, 4. They tend to be kind of fluff and just not very good. This one really is. There's a lot of heart in this. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really good heart put into this, and it, I think it shows through very well. I'd give it. Um, I'd say it's Pixar levels. Actually, if you if you if you watch it through, it's got that same level of storytelling, uh, character play, and um, emotion. There's there's an emotional clout to this which rivals uh, a lot of Pixar films. It's it's good because it's it's a, a story that works on two levels. You've got a ho- you literally have a proper horror story going on. This is a proper horror film in places, and you've got that sort of slight coming of age story going on with the main character, yeah. and it really works so well. In 2006, when it came out, um, to my mind, the weakest Pixar film to date at that point came out as well, Cars. So this gave it a chance to actually get some Academy recognition. It was nominated as one of the only three uh, best animated films of the year. And this was during a period when there were a ton of animated films, usually with screaming animals, coming out. Unfortunately, both Pixar and this lost. Does anyone remember what won? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be happy, am I? You're not going to be happy. Feet. Happy. Oh, oh my God. The Dancing oh. Penguins one. <sighs> okay. Um, another thing that, that this has that uh, m- most of the, especially kids' films don't have, it's a period piece. This film is set in 1990 or thereabouts. It's um, It's got to be after the creation of the Super Soaker, uh, which would have been 1989. And um, around that sort of that era where technology hadn't really advanced to give kids other stuff to do. If you look at the game that uh, Child is playing, it looks like some sort of like really not especially advanced version of Pong. Yeah. 
Um, and there's arcade games knocking around. Now, they seem to have been around for a few years, so it could be sort of the early 90s, but not much later than that. And the other thing is that um, Nebercracker was in the army in... Uh, uh, World War II. World War II, which means that he couldn't really have gotten together with Constance much later than 45 or 46. And he's been around for, as he says, 45 years. So I'm thinking 1990 to coincide with uh, not being too long after the Goonies and all those other ones that I talked about before. But because they don't belabor that point, and say it's 1990, it has kind of a timeless feel unless you really look and then go, oh, actually, there's loads of stuff which suggests that this was about, what, 20... There's lots that suggest, but nothing that's definite. Yeah. So I just realised, thinking about it, there's no, like, mobile phones in it either. Something that's so ubiquitous now. Yeah. And the, it would make Skull and Bones just about the right, uh, like, this period was when metal was sort of on its way into becoming very much niche. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that, that's rare that that actually happens. Um, also, here's another thing that differs from the average CGI family adventure. Kids doing bad things. Yeah. I'll just go through an itemized list here. Trespassing. <laughs> Talking about murder. They do talk about people being killed a lot. Yeah, yeah but it's kind of the way that kids would, like... Yeah. When he thinks he's killed the old man, he's, you know, DJ's really broken up where, uh, Chowder just sees it as something to wind his friend up about. Yeah. But that's, that, that doesn't happen in a lot of films. They don't take death lightly, uh, it, which is something that kids actually do. When I was probably around about DJ's age, I was watching Friday the 13th and Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street, which is kind of depressing because I realized that might make me skull. <laughs> And Robocop. <laughs> I mean, th- th- we're actually just about the right age, uh, you and I, Neil, for this to have been sort of, uh, we'd have been about that age anyway in sort of a 1990, maybe a little bit younger. Um, but yeah, other things that, that they do in this film, extortion. <laughs> yeah. Jenny with Z at the door, absolutely extortion. Lying. Talking about drinking, which is when uh, Chowder t- turns around and goes, you got any beer? And he's trying to be really smooth around Jenny. <laughs> You're not going to get, in the average film, kids talking about beer, because that's... Stealing! I just... yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, that's... I forgot about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, that is one of my favourite scenes. It's on my list, but yeah, it's, that's when he, he nicks the... Uh, I think um, the way... <laughs> DJ puts it, you can borrow some uh, uh, cough syrup and then he, Chowder, later, they immediately translate that, that into I am not stealing drugs. Exactly. Uh, peeing in bottles. Not going to turn up in every film. <laughs> swearing. Now, it's only mild swearing, like crap and we're screwed, but that still, it's the sort of stuff that gets imitated, so it's not going to get into every uh, film. Handling dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> And let's not forget manslaughter. There are various concerned mother groups that make itemized lists of everything they find objectionable and disturbing in films. This one would set up all kinds of alarm bells. Uh, What we do with those lists is go, ah, we better go watch this film then. One of the reviews on Finding Nemo on the uh, US website says, within the first few minutes, a child tells his father he hates him. I turned off after that, and it's like, you what? What? These what? are what we call the idiot parents. Yeah, you you didn't see the rest of the film and all that heartwarming stuff where you realise that he doesn't hate his father at all. Well, the big point about Finding Nemo is is to struggle against adversity and big challenges. And what a parent! You have to have adversity to get past it. 
Either way, yeah. Anyway. Um, and so how does this film portray being 12 years old? Pretty damn close. All they needed was, like, to have horror movies in there that they, they liked or something, and yeah. it's kind of like I was. Yeah, I, I, I recognize a lot of my uh, myself in all of this. There's the, the sense Will of being... admit that perhaps the language is a little bit tame for a 12-year-old, but... Yeah, actually, the... Um... The language in Stand By Me and Super 8 is a bit more, uh, like, with actual proper effing and jeffing. But um, but it's close. Um, there's that sense of being stuck in the middle where you're, you're not, you know, neither here nor there. You're in sort of a limbo of childhood. I believe they, marketers refer to it as tweens. Being frustrated with your parents. I'm waiting for that to stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> clashing with teenagers. Which, of course, okay, because they're beyond the limbo and they're beyond the tweens and they, they hold all the power because they don't play by the adults' rules and they can torture children. Anxiety over girls, absolutely. That never changes. Uh, being disbelieved by authority. I mean, that's, again, that, never that also changed. never changes. If you've got a crazy story, they're not going to believe an adult talking about a monster house. And your heroes are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> that never changes either, strangely enough. Yeah... Okay, and uh, what are some of the more subtle aspects of the film that you noticed? So, for example, um, uh, for me, eye movements, their eyes, and I don't know if this has really been done in many films beforehand, but it certainly wasn't uh, in, in many. Their eyes dart about like people do. If you actually look at someone and they're talking to you, or especially if they're very stressed out, their eyes don't just sit in their head like sort of dead orbs. They don't just sit there like plastic. People's eyes dart about because when you're thinking, your eyes are basically reflecting that. And they're sort of scanning left and right and uh, and, and sort of darting around in your head. They do that a lot in this. They fiddle as well in scenes, don't they, when they're talking? They they, they find something to fiddle or they're doing something, which is what you do. You know, you're trying to explain something and you do sort of... Again, like the eye movement, you just sort of move yourself and the body, the whole body position and body language is in there as well because it is that type of... Uh, performance capture. I have to say the teeth sort of, especially with Nebercracker, I don't know what it is about. It, it's got to do with the whole Gollum thing, but yeah. the fact that his teeth are disheveled and when he yells, you can see them just because they're, they're just odd ones just left. It adds to the sort of crazed man feel he has about him. Yeah. He has meth teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to point out, we didn't mention this, uh, uh, Nevercracker is Steve Buscemi. Yeah, no, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about him properly in just a bit. There's the subtext of industrialization that runs throughout it, the idea that um, they started building, uh, well, they started preparing to build apartments uh, where the town lake was, um, but that seems like a building site that's been there for a long, long time. Like, they've been trying to do this and trying to get it ha- happening. And then they just sort of, they've left it for six months or so, and they might or might not come back and do it. And this sense that, you know, industrialization is very good at starting things, maybe not so good at finishing things. So once things would, are destroyed, they might not help to rebuild. I would say that the undercurrent of the whole film is perhaps change itself. Mm. Yeah. You- Letting go of the past. Yeah. Because it's something that plays in later on when you find out the backstory of the house and why it is what it is. I don't have, have either of you guys played L.A. Noir? Yes. Okay, uh, Jerome, I don't know if you'll, uh, you'll agree necessarily, but I felt a lot about, of, of sort of L.A. Noir feel about Nebercracker's past. Yes. Coming exactly. straight out of the army. It felt like when he started building the house, 
it was like the early neighborhoods, like sort of the, in the way that sort of LA back in the, the day was being shown as a sort of progressive new, we're going to build very cheap prefab houses up and sort of, you know, build our, our town here. And like there wasn't much of America that had been populated at that point. And then suddenly there was this explosion over the next few decades. And this sort of sense of like this boundless possibility after the war. And then what yeah. happened after that? Especially the fact that his house is sort of like you can't see anything around at all for miles. It's yeah, just that it's one. Just, it seems like almost desert, this, this infinite radial plain. Sort of hits home that Nebuchadnezzar has been there long before the neighborhood even existed. Yeah. And then it grows in around him. Yeah. Mm. And there's also the sense of the small town time warp, like I said before, about the, the those arcade games just sort of sat there for a long, long time. Like, you can probably get by without changing things. Again, it's it's not dissimilar to Napoleon Dynamite in, in that sense of without someone to come in and change things, things will sort of stagnate somewhat. And there is a sense of stagnation about the house itself that um, Nevercrack has been in there for 45 years just trying to keep things consistent and not move forwards. Mm. And there's also a very sensual nature uh, of the house. That um, This is something Gil Keenan mentioned as well. The... Uh, when uh, Nevercracker is carted away the first time, this sort of blade of grass caresses his hand and just sort of yeah. tries to, uh, you know, touch him. And, and then it starts to hold it back. And it's there's a sense that the house can feel everything that treads on it. Like its entire its entire central nervous system and its epidermis is the surrounding area around it. So it's it's kind of like Toff's feet in the sense that if if you if you step near her, you're almost treading on her eyes, if that makes sense. Like the, the, the house is super sensitive, which is why it's um, so aggressive. Yeah. And, and yeah, all of the sound effects and the little subtle movements all sort of play into that. Uh, the discovery of a key is very important to adventure stories because it, it triggers something in our head where we're like, right, we found a key. Some point... It's going to open something. I am going yeah. to stick around until I see what that key opens. That's not just adventure movies. That's life. Yeah. We've all done that. I found a key going, what does this open? Yeah. I must know. <laughs> if I told you right now, but gentlemen, that I have a box right here, and I'm not going to open it up or tell you what's inside. Why? Why would you do such a thing? There's no box. It's hypothetical. Damn you and your Schrodinger's box. But you see what that that means? Yeah. That, that a human being's natural inclination of, ooh, box, interesting. Why, does, why do people not want me to find out what's inside? And so automatically, w- before the key, you're freaked out by the house. When you get the key, you're like, right, what's We're going inside in that there. house? We're going in. And yeah, from then on, it's a something. countdown. Um, Google Docs are as dumb as chowder. <laughs> in in terms of uh, when I typed in uvula, it said, "I do not know this word. Do you mean vulva?" <laughs> oh, I, I love said, that joke. "No, girl house." No, yeah. I don't. Everyone has a uvula. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> little asides you get throughout the the film. Little like verbal asides. Like so, when the kids are acting, it seems almost like they're um. Uh, uh, ad-libbing certain lines like um, when uh, when Chowder is wheeling out the vacuum dummy and he's like you know uh, don't panic that's not what I trained you for I love you vacuum cleaner dummy 
and he just mutters that. And when Nebercracker comes back, Chunk is trying to shoo him away, and he says, "Begone, fie!" Which is such a sort of throwaway line, but it's like a medieval term. I don't know where he's learned it from. Uh, he used to express disgust or disapproval. <laughs> <laughs> upon you and also the other thing and this is a very very little quiet moment at the very beginning when that little girl gets scared off by Nebercracker she runs away screaming from him and then she stops pauses and looks back at him and there's a little bit of like she's still scared but there's a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of sympathy in her eyes like she wants to know what Nebercracker's going to do and how he's going to react and maybe he might not be as horrible as he's acting and then he tears the fun off her tricycle and she realises that uh that he was as horrible as, as she thought. And that seems very interesting when you watch it for a second time. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely a movie that once you've seen it once, everything sort of fits into place. Yeah. There's also a lot of handy cam moments in it where like the, the camera seems to be sort of like free roaming. And this was just after Firefly, so they had only just started doing this in CG uh, productions. But it's a really great way of feeling immediate and like almost like it's a, a documentary at times, the way it charges about the place. And it goes from being like David Fincher levels of like super high detail zooms around um, environments and textured uh, architecture uh, to being almost like Cloverfield. Yeah. Actually, my favourite shot of the entire film is early on, uh, and it's the, the, what would they call it, cutaway, where where um, you see the two boys standing on one side on the pavement looking at the lost ball, and it's but it's like a, a crosscut, so you're seeing all the pipe work in the soil and everything. I love that shot for some reason, oh, just because yeah. you don't see that so well at yeah. all. I mean, this is something that having it animated is is a, a perfect example of, of being able to use your medium rather than just giving people an empty stage, filling it with grass, and saying, right, now there are boys on the grass. The architecture and the body of the house, it has eyes, teeth, tongue, stomach, heart, arms, and eventually hands. It's a, It's a full creature. Yeah. It fully realized it wasn't just um, a, ha- a house with a mouth. Mm. I'm going to tell everyone right now, this is the spoiler bit. From now on, you don't want to know anything. If you've not seen this yet, you don't want to know anything more that we're talking about. Okay, We've given you enough detail and enough stuff to look out for. Uh, but uh, but from listening from now on will diminish your enjoyment of the film because you, you will want to find this stuff out for yourself. It's an adventure. It's a mystery. And it'd be like saying the butler did it. Right, moving on. Okay, so... After the music, spoiler time.
So Mr. Nebercracker, Steve Buscemi's character. Once you know his secret, you you react just like DJ did. You have this sort of sympathy for him, the fact that he's been he's had to be this person for so long mm. without anybody knowing for everybody else's better good. He's had to demonise himself. Yeah. Because when you first see him in the film, he comes across as that sort of comedy cranky old man, you know, get off my get off my lawn. He even says that at one point. <laughs> but the whole point is, he, while yes, he is doing that, it's not for the reasons you think he's doing it. Yeah, he's a protector. You know, yeah. He's living in fear of his, his wife. There's a, there's a point where he actually has to stand up to her, which is a turning point in his character. It, it seems like he's been waiting for years for a way out, but actually just standing up to her and saying, no, don't hurt these children. It's a very important step for him. Throughout the neighbourhood... There's been the rumor that he actually killed his wife. Yeah. And for They're that. They just to... killed! Eight. <laughs> Eight. It's a kid's film that mentions cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. This is and awesome. The... And the fact that, um, when you get to see the whole story of how they met and despite what everybody, he saw, he rescued her from her previous life and he's, even when they were together, he spent time trying to calm her down and this one, po- the, point when he tried to stand up to her sort of led to her death and he's sort of been holding on to this guilt for so long mm. yeah I hadn't even realised it was guilt it, I, I couldn't see that as being his fault at all mm. but I could see how That's, he would consider yeah. it his fault for standing up to her yeah it's events repeating themselves it's him saying you leave those children alone yeah. and her striking out in rage and him trying to stop her and things just going horribly wrong. I will say I hate circuses. Yeah. There, there's almost nothing good about circuses. One, cruelty to animals. Sick of that. Can't stand circuses that are cruel to animals. Two, clowns. Can't use them. There is no use for clowns. They're not funny. They're just scary. Um, is okay it a circus or is it a freak show? Oh, yeah. Different. That's another thing about circus. A lot of the old school circuses were about the freak shows. Yeah. Rather than Whereas today, whenever you hear circus, you'll normally think... Acrobats. Oh, acrobats. And See, people. acrobats I'm fine with. No problem. If, if they're trained athletes who are given a decent wage and taken care of, then, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Not so long as they play, pay off the local gangster. Yeah. But Victorian circuses, where it was about the freak show, it was about the cruelty to animals, and it was about the clowns, they can sod off. There's a lot of um, uh, stories where what started out as you know a fairly innocuous circus becomes it becomes the Phantom of the Opera, you know, becomes the Elephant Man, becomes uh, Todd Browning's Freaks. And Constance was essentially just treated as an animal the whole time she was there. She was kept in a cage outside the tent. Where I mean, you don't see anybody else from the circus, but you can. Uh, you can figure that they were essentially abusing her and the fact that she left this life and she was still being tormented in her eyes by these kids. And also she's dubbed a giantess. She's just a fat woman. Yeah. That's not an act. That's just look at the fat woman. That's awful. Exactly. But that sort of sort of the mentality of the sort of the freak show. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they probably told her. Oh, you're a giantess. People will love to see you. Yeah. And she starts out just sort of waving to them. Mm. She's really sad that the idea that she thought that this could work. (sighs) 
And she's played by Kathleen Turner, who, with the way they pitched it, they said, right, you have played the sexiest woman in animation, which to this day, I think is still pretty much undisputed. Jessica Rabbit. Now, on a, in a Rob Zemeckis film, also produced by Steven Spielberg, you can play the least sexy woman in the world. <laughs> the most horrible and horrific. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. To give her a props, if you actually watch the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, she acted out the house as well. When it's stomping along on all fours or with tree arms, that's her. Really? Yep. Okay. She's going, that and storming around like a giant house. And um, it's the same in Beowulf when there's uh, the dragon. That's actually played by Ray Winstone. The dragon is played by Ray Winstone. That's attention to detail. And uh, all of the, the roars that the house makes is actually Kathleen Turner roaring, but they've edited it and actually they've combined it with the creaking and the ambient sounds of rotten old wood. That's quite quite clever. Yeah. The, the, a lot of the actual sound effects that they, they did, they went to um, a series of barns and just did lots of recordings within the barns of like sort of the moving wood and the wind. Uh, and they just sort of played around with that to make it sound as organic and natural as possible. I, I, I could frankly work in Foley uh, and uh, sound effects because I love that stuff. And I'm not too bad on the old sound effects myself. Still, at least this man knew who he was. What are you doing? The two cops walking out at the end of the credits is actually, you were supposed to see their bones and they were going to be dead, but to keep their rating, they made it so they came back. Oh, seriously? They were going to be dead? Yeah, yeah you were supposed to see their, um, like, the re- their remains, but to keep their PG rating, they had to show that they made it out nobody died yeah i think that that feels right actually there's Mm. no the only person that really dies in this is constance and it it actually happens in events 45 years previously Mm. i mean the house doesn't actually have a digestive system no there's a lot of water in there but Mm. uh but no Uh, another thing i really like about the house is that it only uses what it has it's like a tool set and, you know, so when it's trying to get Jenny into its mouth, it's not using telekinesis or magic or anything. It's pushing up the paving stones with water yeah. pipes and tipping her towards its mouth. I mean, it's it's got, like, a prehensile carpet, which doesn't really make any sense. But, like I say, it's, it's using bits of itself to, to move around. It's not there, – there's a, a sort of a, a physics to it. Yeah. Even though if you think too deeply into it, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> And, and yeah, the, uh, the whole constant story sort of comes to a head when she swallows the kids and then, uh, Nebercracker comes back and you actually see, see how that came about. To hit on that point, the real, when you get that shot of Nebercracker switching from that angry person he's been playing to the realization that these kids know and yeah. they're in grave danger and he has to do something. The fact that he had, he bought some souvenirs home in those explosives and sort of kept them there by the door. Uh, it, you know, it's a good way of making sure that they have some dynamite for the end of the film. Apparently there was going to be like a dynamite shack, a handy dandy one on the building site. Uh, yeah. But they decided that would be too contrived and it made more sense for him, you know, being an explosives expert to have some in the house. But that adds another dimension to it, which is that for years, 45 of them, he had been considering, maybe I should just end this. Maybe this needs to be destroyed. And 
because he was just trying to keep things as they were and because he didn't have the heart or the gumption or the wherewithal to just go through with it, he never used it. But when he, um, you know, he actually likes it, that's sort of a, a heroic act because she could squash him like a bug. And it could have gone two ways at that point. It could actually have... Uh, another alternative ending to the film could just have been that she sort of rolled out that carpet and allowed him to put the dynamite on it and then just sucked it inside and then exploded. That would have been a really poignant, sad ending, just that she agreed, this has gone too far now. Something's just hit me I was meant to bring up. The fact that Nebercracker, he's recently had a heart attack. Yep. He's woken up from it. He's escaped the hospital, stolen an ambulance and driven all this way with the arm, essentially maybe a broken arm or just a sprained arm. Mm. And he's still being chased by a giant house throughout the neighborhood. <laughs> and he hasn't had a second heart attack? <laughs> exactly. I think, well, that's at the point when he goes out for the count and he passes over yeah. the dynamite symbolically like a sword to DJ to deal with. And uh, there's a lot of I haven't really talked about Jenny much, but there's a lot of Hermione in there in terms of the fact that she's like, she's, she may be the youngest of the uh, kids, but she acts a lot older and more precocious of her age and sort of, she's the anchor that stops the two boys doing something way too silly. And she's, uh, she's a key part of the group and a really great way of, of, of getting a, a sort of a group dynamic going on. Because if it was just two boys, there's only so much you can get from that. But throwing a, a, a girl in between the two of them to create a lot of extra conflict and friction, it, it's, a, it's a recipe for far more interesting characterization. And then there's that fantastic sort of end sequence, which, uh, again, is it's not dissimilar to a Pixar film or maybe a, a, an Indiana Jones film with all the sort of swinging around and the dynamite and stuff like that. It feels much bigger than the actual film has to this point allowed, possibly helped by the fact that the, the theatre it's set up in this giant drained lake just has this you know immense scale. And the house, which has been destroyed once already... Um, and then reformed itself as this sort of thing made almost entirely out of teeth. Have you guys both played to completion Resident Evil 2? Yep. It actually kind of reminded me of William Birkin. The way it's <laughs> yeah. like, how many times am I going to have to kill you? And it keeps coming back and having more teeth and being more frightening. Chowder gets that awesome line, you're a shack, you're an outhouse. And again, <laughs> this is the time when uh, Chowder gets to prove that he's uh, brave and, uh, and actually drives the digger and goes, ah. But you can tell that he's scared out of his wits, but just yeah. fighting through it anyway, which is the best kind of bravery. Yeah, where he's voicing the, the insults and he's feeling quite proud because he's basically fighting the, the house in the... In a digger. Get away from her, you bitch! So yeah, it, it, it gets destroyed in this in this way that doesn't really feel contrived because they've been they've been planning on dealing with the heart. Originally, they were going to get to the furnace in the uh, center of the house and uh, then turn the super soakers on it, which would explain why they were bringing super soakers along with them. And but the furnace is an enormous roaring furnace, and the water is just going to evaporate. So it's going to be this huge effect sequence with this undulating, fiery heart of a furnace with no real payoff. Yeah. So they decided against that in the end. And then they went for the whole discovering the body, which is such a key aspect of the uh, ghost, uh, you know, the haunted house film. But uh, like with most of the best ghost stories, just finding the body isn't going to be enough. They've got to do more than that. Yeah. And it's actually quite grisly if you think about the idea that she, you know, she fell to her yeah. death, was covered in concrete and then rotted inside this, this uh, carapace of uh, cement for 45 years. 
to then be smashed open by DJs fumbling and falling forwards. This is why I said this film is a legitimate horror film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, you age the kids to their their later teen years, you add in some gore. Yeah. This is a horror film. But it's also a really, really good horror film. But also, mind you, if you take those kids forwards, then you lose that subtext about becoming growing up. There's a lot of other things that uh, that you'd lose if you, if you did. It's more the fact you have to take the kids forward because there's not many full-on horror films that actually involve children in any way, shape, or form. It and is not the only one I can think of, really. It is probably the only good one. There are a couple of good, really good ghost stories, which are actually quite upsetting that involve children, like The Sixth Sense, but very rarely are they gory. Mm. Yeah. I suppose it's because when you start combining gore with children, uh, it's unless it's handled very carefully, you're going to turn off most audiences. Unless it's kick-ass. <laughs> well, that's different. That's the child meeting out the actual damage. Yeah, but it's it's not something you ever really put together. And if it is, you have to be so careful and so spot on with it, because if you get it wrong, you're Alien versus Predator Requiem. Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, good point. They they butchered a child in that, and it just felt terrible. Interesting that you mentioned Kickass. There, Chloe Grace Moretz was in the remake of uh, Let the White One In, Let Me In. So that is a yeah. horror film which involves children, and she's also in the, Carrie. Carrie, the remake written by Stephen King, which this has a very good feel of. There's a circle of life thing here, but it more it's it's more just a case of that there really are only a few people who can get this done right. Done right, it works exceptionally well. Done wrong, and it's terrible. And so, yeah, the house is destroyed by dynamite in a way that feels valid. And Nebercracker says goodbye to the ghost of Constance, which, again, feels kind of... It's poignant because it's very sad, but it's also the happiest thing to have happened to him ever. In it essentially yeah. means his freedom now. Yeah. I expected him to die at this point, for them to both go off at the same time, but giving him a second chance at life is actually, it feels right at this stage. He can apologise to the entire neighbourhood he's been terrorising for years, a lot of whom are now adults, and build himself a new house. And there's something very symbolic in the idea of, of building a new house as well. The one moment that made me laugh the most out of the whole film is... Chowdis finally got his basketball back. $28! I mowed so many lawns and asked my mother for a dollar 20 times! He takes one shot, gets wedged within the basket, basket hoop, and they just, you know what? <laughs> Too much trouble. And yeah, we, they, they go trick or treating, and it really does seem to be kind of a one last time. This is like their last night of it, and we don't, we end this on a high note and don't have to see them in the morning after going right, so I, I guess that was it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a lovely, lovely film about growing up and putting away childish things, and, um, at the very end of it, somewhat ironically, Bones turns back up again dragging with him his awesome kite so he has found a childish thing yeah there was going to be a uh, a scene where it sort of flashback to him and he was like little lord fontroy back when he was five <laughs> uh like you know little little sweet child wearing lederhosen and, and it possibly that taking that kite away messed him up from then on and the idea that maybe now he will be whole again um, he has his the, little red kite yeah awesome kite what happened to Nebelcracker's house? It turned into a monster, so I blew it up. Trick or treat! You know, 
You're right. We're definitely too old for trick-or-treating. Oh, yeah. No question about it. On the other hand, we've been working all night. Candy time? Candy time. We're back! Yes! Right, so, Neil, rather than asking you to pimp one of your three shows, you've got one minute to pitch a Halloween-appropriate movie. Well, no, it doesn't necessarily need to be similar to Monster House. can be just a total slasher. Halloween-appropriate movie, go. Halloween-appropriate movie for families. I love this, and it is by Disney, and I may get mocked for this. Hocus Pocus. <laughs> I love this film it's about a family that moves to salem and the uh the son accidentally resurrects three witches from salem's past and it's about his attempt to stop them it's fantastic and it has a sarcastic black cat in it which is yeah. always awesome okay um so if that's yours then jerome okay i'm going to recommend an old Hanna Barbera movie that i used to watch as a kid called the halloween tree it's basically about four friends when they hear that their friend has been ill and sick to the hospital, they rush off to, after the ambulance. They see his ghost run to house and they end up going on a whirlwind adventure finding out the origins of different monsters and the origins of Halloween and eventually get their friend's soul back. Oh, right. A great it's very, very, very good. Yeah. Isn't great that for one the family. with um, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy in as well? Yeah, I, to, I can't remember who he voices, but it's definitely one to see. I'm going to pitch my, I think, my favourite ghost story of all time, with possibly up there against The Sixth Sense. Uh, not dissimilar to that film or Poltergeist. Uh, it's called The Orphanage. And uh, very simple, it's a Spanish language film. A yeah. uh, lady moves into uh, an orphanage that she uh, inhabited as a child. She brings with her her child, who it turns out is very sick, and her husband and it begins to become apparent that the children that she spent time with in the orphanage when she was a child are still there it's very very good Definitely. I like the fact that I like the fact that me and Jerome though went for the family friendly ones the well I just want to give people some uh, some alternative <laughs> But yeah, no, it's also because I want to do a, a podcast on this uh, coming up in the next few uh, months. I'll do one in 2013. I think I might do it in a, a trilogy with um, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone. Uh, it's, uh, pro- it's produced by Guillermo del Toro, so there's the link there. And of course, if you want the ultimate fra- family-friendly, fun-time adventure that involves ghosts, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Um, funny little thing about Ghostbusters. Yeah. I, Marshmallow Man terrifies me because when I was just little, we, I went to Universal Studios, saw the live Ghostbusters show, and they had a giant animatronic 
Marshmallow Man and that scared the hell out of me. And to this day, I feel terror whenever I see it. I am going to find a staple Marshmallow Man toy and chase Jerome around the next duplex <laughs> with it just for the hell of it now. I shall videotape I this. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you do remember, I am evil. <laughs> Whoa, 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 whoa. Egon, did you think of anything? No. Winston? My mind is totally blank. I didn't think of anything. (laughs) Ray? (laughs) I couldn't help it. (laughs) He's so sailor. He's in New York. He's looking for a good time. Nobody steps in a church in my town. We will be back on Sunday with our Serenity podcast, rounding off the Firefly shows. Then... We start the Lord of the Rings podcasts in earnest with a prologue show about the books and the animated films before commencing with Fellowship of the Ring. We will see you again real soon. I'd like to thank my guests, Neil Taylor and Jerome McIntosh. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I've been Alex Shaw, and happy Halloween. Spooky.